there's something beautiful about the emotion we call love. We're on a mission to find out more about how it affects every being. It all starts with perception. What if our perception of the world and its many inhabitants expanded? Every being has a different vantage point. When we truly know a soul, we find knowledge. Asking questions with an open mind is how we learn how to relate to one another. When we identify with someone beyond the surface level, we fear less and love more. We're all teachers. Every person on this planet has something impactful to share. This podcast is about expanding our vision and illuminating the threads that bind us together as a community. Simply put, this podcast is about lessons in love that we learn along the way and our journeys to finding our true selves. Welcome to Unified Threads. the final episode of Unified Thread Season 1, Eyes Wide Open. When I first started this podcast, I really had no clue where it was going. I ended up in Greece, seeing things that I couldn't believe were going on. We seem to have forgotten history, and I understand that history repeats itself. How can it truly be repeating itself to this extent? Today's episode is all about what I'm going to be referring to as the Fortress of Europe. When I talk about the Fortress of Europe, I'm talking about the fact that people desperately need help that are very close by Europe, which is why they're fleeing there, because they feel like they can find a better life. As of May 2016, more than 32,000 people have died trying to reach mostly Europe. On March 13th, 2016, a teenager from Egypt died after jumping off a train in southern Germany. A few days before that, he was deported out of Germany where he was discovered hiding under a seat, he handed his officials his documents that were issued in Austria and then rushed into another compartment and jumped out of a window. Another teenager dead, a Kurdish teenager, died in Oxfordshire trying to travel underneath a truck from Dunkirk to Manchester. He had the legitimate right to stay in the UK, but didn't understand this right, or for some unknown reason decided to travel underneath a truck. Oh, here's another one. 38 people dead, 11 of which were children, after a boat capsized in West Turkey last month. An article from The Guardian said that the Minister of the Interior of Germany reported that almost 6,000 refugee children went missing in Germany alone last year. This is amid growing concerns that traffickers and criminals are preying on thousands of vulnerable young people traveling amid the flow of refugees into Europe. It says the exact scale of the crisis is unclear because rudimentary and overwhelmed registration systems mean Europe does not have a clear picture of the number of children arriving on its shores or close tracking of their onward route. European Union estimates that at least 10,000 child refugees have disappeared after arriving in the continent and also said that this estimate was very likely to be underestimated. This was a senior official at UNICEF. He was warning, they are invisible. That's the reason why they are vulnerable. If children aren't counted, they don't count, said Sarah Crow, UNICEF's global spokesperson on the European refugee and mass migration crisis. Germany's interior minister also admitted its estimate could be too low. Authorities are taking the situation, quote-unquote, very seriously, but cases are hard to follow due to the lack of a central data collection point. This is from spokesman Johannes Dimroth. Most of the children who have been identified as missing came from Syria, Afghanistan, Morocco, and Algeria. About 550 of them were under 14. Overall, 95,000 children who are not accompanied by an adult or have been separated from their families sought asylum in the European Union last year, the majority of them in Germany and Sweden. At least 2,000 more unaccompanied children are thought to be stranded in Greece, some already sleeping on the streets after the overland trail towards Western Europe was closed. This is another statement from Crow. Of course, those who are unaccompanied are more likely to be vulnerable to traffickers. During this process where they do not have the right language, they do not have access to information, they will be preyed on. So let's think about this. The trail towards Western Europe was closed. We have 2,000 unaccompanied children at least on the streets of Greece, and the whole world knows about it. 
People spend all year getting ready for Burning Man with the coolest inventions, the most amazing camp setups, the best ways that you can possibly ride around with using the least amount of energy possible. And yet we have unaccompanied minors disappearing from countries because there's no centralized database system to even keep track of them. Open your eyes. We're going to hear from some different perspectives that will help us expand ours. And our first person is Carrie Naftali. Carrie and I met on Lesvos thanks to a mutual friend, Janice. Hey, Janice. Janice and I were roomies on the island, and she knows Carrie and her partner, Regina, from a spiritual community in Massachusetts. Carrie felt inspired to go help on the Greek border after the European Union decided to close the Western Trail. She worked at ECO, which is a camp close by Indomini at the Greek border, for Nurture Project International as a lactation specialist volunteer. Nurture Project International is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization that works to protect safe infant feeding among families impacted by crisis and disaster. They empower mothers and give them training that allows peer-to-peer support groups in large established refugee camps as well as temporary refugee situations. Thank you, Carrie, for being willing to share after only two days of being back in the United States. Now, let's hear Carrie and what was seen on the border of Greece. Hey, Carrie, how are you? Great, right. how are you? Good, good. So how are you feeling? It's been like a lot. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty, um, yeah, it's really hard. It feels like in some ways it was harder than Lesbos. So second day back, but I'm still like over there. Yeah, it's a hard adjustment and I'm really exhausted because I was really running on adrenaline the whole time, all the time. It feels like it's still, you know, starting to subside. <laughs> yeah. Where exactly were you? So there's the big camp with the 12,000 people that's right at the border. That's the Indomini camp. And then about 20 kilometers from there, well, about a few kilometers from there, there are two very small camps that are really neglected. And then there's another camp about 20 kilometers at the um, Eco Gas Station. Estimates run between two and 3,000, so I just figure it's about 2,500 people. And that's where I was. I ended up there because when I was on Lesbos, I was concerned about the infant feeding, how we were giving bottles out, how the infants were getting fed. So I had been speaking with some lactation specialists around the world about they were working on implementing some policies on infant feeding and emergencies. One of them had contacted me about the fact that there was nobody at this camp, that there were some babies in some very um, vulnerable and serious, you know, at-risk situations, and there, there weren't any experts to help with the feeding situation, and these particular babies really needed immediate attention. So I got on a plane and two days later and went. I remember you talking about the the bottle situation. Yeah, I was really concerned about the bottles. First of all, breast milk is far superior to formula, especially when you get in a situation like this with no sanitation. Babies get very, very sick from drinking powdered formula because of the lack of sanitation. And, I mean, they, they can't wash the bottles. They don't necessarily have clean water to make bottles. They can't necessarily continue to be supplied with, with the formula. Extremely dangerous situation for babies to be drinking formula. So we were trying to help the moms who could breastfeed, you know, to breastfeed more or to relactate. And, but at the same time, we provided safe, clean, one-use, pre-made formula bottles at least they could have something safe for the babies while while we worked on that process of increasing breastfeeding and reducing formula. How many moms and babies were at this camp? A lot. I mean, I, I think the statistic was, um, and again, these are all estimates, but I believe it was 40% children of the two to 3,000. So there were a lot of kids. They, they were big families. A lot of families had five kids. There were a lot of babies. Most of them seem to be mixed breastfeeding and bottle feeding. So at least then 
you know, that gives you a chance to get them purely on breastfeeding if you, if you work with them. But, you know, it was unfortunate to see how many were drinking formula, at least to some extent. Now, is this a long-term camp or, you know, I'm still always trying to figure out what exactly is going on at the borders. It's the day after I left, they started moving people into these military detention camps and the letter went out that they're going to have to comply with being sent to these detention camps where they have rules and they're they're kind of prisoners there. Like they have to, if they leave, they're required to be home, you know, back at a certain time. Some of them you're not even allowed to leave, from what I understand. And some of them don't let any volunteers or journalists so that there's no protection or exposure to anything, you know, that's happening in there. Is that for all nationalities, asylum seekers to what they're considering economic migrants? Everyone has to go um, to detention camp? I believe the economic migrants get sent right back to their countries. I don't even think they have a chance at all. That's the last I heard. Um, and the asylum seekers, um, what it seems like, is, you know, I don't know. It's always hard to know exactly what's going on, but it appears as if they're all going to be sent to these camps um, imminently. That's that's what it appears to be happening. And these are run by the Greek government because these are people yeah. stuck on the border of Greece and Macedonia. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, my heart is still very much there. Mm-hmm. I bet. It always is, right? It never yeah. really leaves. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the conditions, I mean, I didn't, should I talk about the conditions in the camps? Yeah, I would, yeah, I would like to hear, you know, what what is that? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you've seen a little bit of Indomini, but I have not even heard about these other camps. Is it? Mm. Yeah. Um, at the eco station, um, well, Indomini is more of like a vast, sprawling camp. This is more like a giant parking lot. But um, the lack of sanitation, you know, the the um, way too few facilities for that many people. There, there were only. A couple of cold showers for a couple thousand people, one spigot for drinking or washing water. Majority of the people were in flimsy little tents that blew away in the wind and got soaked in the rain. People were had to wait in long lines for, for meager portions of food and you know, the people there were lice and scabies and snakes and plastic burning and the kids running into the highway that the camp is right off of the highway and there are kids everywhere you know in the road it was just so dangerous and and dirty and impossible to be clean or safe safe and clean is pretty impossible did you encounter very many unaccompanied minors you know anything about that situation apparently there are a large number of them at indomini at our camp, it was hard to tell because I was so focused on the mothers with the babies. I mean, that was a round-the-clock job, so I didn't have a lot of time to explore what else was happening in camp, but there certainly were a lot of children. We did see a couple of children that seemed pretty disturbed and tried to find their parents and couldn't. I don't know, if, so we don't really know if they if they had parents there or somebody looking after them. And again, you know, we had our hands so full with the babies that were really needing help and some of whom were really not well. It was hard. You know, there's so much need in the camp and you just want to do everything for everybody. So I really tried to stay focused on what my expertise was so that I could do the best I could to help all the babies that I could. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But there were other volunteers that were more like Lighthouse, you know, that were having more interactions with the older kids because the, the ones I interacted with were very little, so they were with their moms. What group were you with, or were you with a solidarity-type group of volunteers? It's a Nurture Project International specializes in infant feeding and emergencies. When I first got there, we had one tent, which was like half partly for breastfeeding moms, and the other part was volunteers were making little basins of water so that moms could come in and bathe their babies. There's no way to really wash your kids. Eventually, by the second week I was there, we got a second tent, so we were able to separate those two things, which was really helpful. So we had one breastfeeding tent and one where we made little basins that the mom could 
days the baby's in. And every once in a while, we'd see somebody from UNHCR around, but we didn't really see any any presence by them. Like, for me, I kind of feel like what to do next. You know, I have responsibilities that I've got to take care of and replenish the bank account. But, like, what are you feeling to do next? All I can feel is, like, have to keep sharing. That's all I know yeah, to do. Yeah, right. Well, I'm starting by talking to you. On Saturday, I'm speaking at an international peace dinner in our local city here. And when I was working for NPI, I was working with this incredible Irish midwife from New Hampshire, and she and I had the same philosophy of midwifery care and women's health, and we hit it off instantly. She's still there. She's coming back soon, but we're already scheming our return trip. I think what we'll do is go together independently not with an organization. She has all of her midwifery tools and medical kit, and we can just go do outreach. Tara Camp, the small one, they have pretty much no care there. So this midwife has been going over there after hours, taking care of those women who she found some that were in really bad shape and babies who hadn't been fed in days. And there was nobody handling infant feeding there at all. So... This midwife took that on. She went in there and took care of the women and the babies, and she's going to continue to do so until she comes home, which is pretty soon. So hopefully somebody else will, will take over. The only organization that I know of that's been in that camp is Northern Life. Although somebody posted on Facebook, somebody from another organization posted something about being in there working, but we didn't know of any presence other than Northern Life, and they didn't really know about infant feeding, and uh, they were happy to talk to the midwife about it and work out a plan. So she said they were really fantastic, um, what they were doing there. They were all on their own. That kind of goes into the final question of what does community mean to you? It's been a whole new side of a community that I'd never experienced before. Uh, So I just wanted to kind of hear what your thoughts were on, like, one word or phrase to describe the community you've become a part of, that we've all become a a part of, that have been involved with this. Yeah, it's interesting because I live in a spiritual community. It's funny, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's true. I I do feel part of a community, and, you know, I find it so inspiring. You know, I've I've found with all this darkness and misery of what's going on, I've found the community of volunteers to be so inspiring and uplifting. There are so many people in the world that want to help. And, you know, it's funny because the people who know me, that what I'm doing, you know, they they think like, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't believe you're doing this. You're such a hero. And it's like, but no, you know, there, there are thousands of people that are, that are just ready to step in and, and help. And so moved by that just gives me hope that if there are so many of us that, that want to help, that maybe we can make the world a better place, I hope. The last episode was called Polarity, because mm. in such a dark, despairing place, there's so much hope. There's mm-hmm. those polar opposites that are happening in this crisis, and like mm-hmm. having to keep in mind that it is so, such a dark thing, but that there's something good coming from it, because at least... Yeah. Maybe we can help one family each or something for the long term. I mean, did you connect with anyone? There's maybe a story that you'd want to share of a specific yeah, person sure. that you met? Oh, yeah. I mean, I connected very deeply with the mothers I was working with because I had to work very intimately with them on expressing milk from their breasts and, you know, helping them nurse their babies. And so I made very deep connections. Some of the mothers I had to work with multiple times a day. So I'll tell you about this one baby that I worked with, Mohammed. His mother had to flee from Syria when he was two days old. She had five other children, so six children, two-day-old. She had had a nice home birth in Syria. I don't know how nice it was with the bombing, but she had a healthy birth and had to escape two days later and did that whole treacherous journey with her six children and her newborn on the boats and everything. Made it all the way to us. They were robbed of everything they owned, including their phones, their money, everything. And, you know, then arrived to this camp where they live in these little pup tents that blow away in the wind and her kids all have coughs. One of her sons has, at least one, has scabies, and they have no way to get rid of it or wash. Um, the baby had not been growing, which is why I was um, 
uh, notified, you know, about this particular case to work with this baby because he, he, at seven weeks, was still the size of a newborn. So I worked very closely with this mother who was clearly traumatized and with this baby. And they both really turned a corner. That was, I, I could cry talking about it. George Orwell would be very, very proud of Europe uh, and our capacity for doublespeak and creating uh, new terms by which to hide the awful reality. Uh, when you see the word hotspots, just translate it to concentration camps. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, the Greek government has been steadily pressurized by the European Union to um, effectively intern the refugees. Instead of treating them like uh, human beings in need of support, in need of food, in need of medicine, in need of psychological uh, assistance, um, they are going to be treated, according to Brussels, as uh, illegals, aliens, that are going to be enclosed in those hotspots concentration camps. And I have it on good authority from within the Greek government that the pressure is tremendous. The Greek government, which is, of course, uh, fiscally uh, completely and utterly impecunious, is being told the only way you are going to get money is if you intern them. So if you let them free and loose, even within Greece, you're getting not a penny in order to help feed them. So we have a magnificent uh, array of NGOs and volunteers who are looking after the refugees. Uh, the Greek state uh, is in a state of disarray <laughs> because it just can't afford even to look after the Greeks who are suffering a long seven-year-old, uh, seven-year-long Great Depression. Um, the Greek state is trying to do something, but is being, being pu pushed by Europe to treat inhumanely those refugees, but more generally. Look, this should not be a problem. Europe is large enough, it is rich enough, we should be able to handle this refugee crisis humanely, efficiently, without this even being uh, something we discuss. So let me remind our audience something that most people have forgotten. When the Iron Curtain came down in 1991, uh, Greece, which, is, uh, which was never a rich country, a country of 10 million people, we accepted 1 million refugees within a few months. Half of, of Albania moved to Greece. Do you know what happened? Nothing. It was all fine. They still live there. Their kids come to the university where I teach. Uh, they're amongst my best students. Uh, Greece has become enriched. Um, our culture has become stronger. Our food has become even better. And uh, we, if, if a small, middle, lower middle income country like Greece can accept a 10% influx of refugees in a few months, and do reason quite well out of it, and actually be stronger as a result of Europe, which is aging pathetically, should accept these refugees, like Angela Merkel initially said in September, October, I think she was vetoed by her own party and her own uh, supporters. So what, what we have is the European Union is disintegrating under its uh, postmodern 1930s. This is what, what we've been experiencing the last 10 years due to the economic crisis. The foundations... I wanted to ask you, Yanis yes, Varoufakis, yes, is Greece being used as, as an example by Germany, a kind of warning to France? Oh, in the, in the economic realm, there's absolutely no doubt about, about that. Amy, one of the wonderful aspects, well, few wonderful aspects, of having served for five, six months sitting on that electric chair of the finance minister of Greece was that for the first time in my life I didn't have to theorize about these issues. I was told uh, German officials uh, of the highest rank uh, answered your question in the affirmative. They said to me explicitly, how can we let you off the hook when we want the Troika to go to Paris and to rein in the French national budget? So um, a proud nation like the Greeks is being used as collateral damage. Its misery is being used as a signal to France that it cannot uh, ha have its cake and eat it. By that, what I mean. And the, Germans, the German elites have a, a point of sorts. Uh, the French elites always wanted to rule over Europe, to determine the, to, to be the administrators of Europe, uh, using German monetary credibility to do so. And the Buddhist Bank and the German government wants to smack them for this. 
uh, unfortunately they are smacking them by smacking Greece and pushing the Greek nation into an often frightful recession. Now when Europe uses whole populations as instruments for the pursuit of 19th century-like power politics, you know that there is something deeply rotten in the Kingdom of Europe. And then when you add the refugee crisis on top of that, the centrifugal forces, the free-loading attitudes, the not-in-my-backyard kind of mentality that the economic malaise and the economic conflict has caused, then uh, transfers, transfers itself onto the realm of dealing with the refugees and treating them as a bad that needs to be thrown off one's backyard and onto somebody else's backyard. And the result is a complete loss of Europe's integrity and soul. Well, Yanis, uh, very quickly before we conclude, uh, you've talked about the rise of right-wing parties and, and, and Greece's uh, uh, golden dawn in particular as becoming worse as the economic crisis worsened. So could you talk about the impact of, of golden dawn and its recent uh, expansioning power, expanding power? It's not just golden dawn. It's everywhere in Europe. We have a neo-fascist government in Hungary. We have Marie Le Pen, who is going to top the presidential race next year in France. I mean, you just have to state this to panic. You have UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party in Britain. You've got uh, Austria in Vienna, the beautiful city of Vienna, 42% voted for a neo-fascist party in the last municipal election. It's very simple. Great Depression, national humiliation, put them together, like in the 1920s and 30s in, in Germany, and you end up with the serpent's egg hatching. That's the former finance minister of Greece, Yanis Varoufakis. You just heard the former Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, share about his perspective on the refugee crisis and how these hotspot refugee registration centers are turning into concentration camps. Now, when I was volunteering on Lesbos Island, Moria Camp was somewhere you could come and go freely. This is somewhere that all of the volunteers on the island visited at one point or another. And whether you were signed up for a shift or not, you could go in and work with people and help them feel like they mattered. Help them realize that they weren't forgotten about. Now that's totally changed. Volunteers are on lockdown. Refugees are having hunger strikes and other protests on the daily. It's not a good situation at all. The volunteers that I worked with around the island is how I met Yepe. Yep, he's our next guest. He's from Denmark, he's a rescue diver, and he's going to share his thoughts on the camps he's seen across Europe. A good friend of mine in Denmark, she was... Uh and he was a contact person for two boys from Afghanistan who was applying for asylum. And after I don't know how many years, the government decided they were not threatened. So they sent these two boys back to Afghanistan, to Kabul. The younger brothers expected that. The older brother has lost contact with him. They were living on a bridge. And now then my friend collected money to help him to get to another country than Denmark where he could be safe. And then she... She was quite good at that, so she started doing that for other kids. After a while, the intelligent police intelligence service came and knocked her door and said, Who was seeing her? She could get up to eight years for organized travel. She spent all her money. She has not made a dime of it. She was, on the contrary, like struggling to buy food and clothes for her kids now because she has spent all her stuff for her. Yeah. So Denmark is a weird place to be a refugee volunteer. I was in Copenhagen in September. Mm -hmm. This is when I barely scratched the surface of understanding what was going on. As an American, probably all Americans aren't like this, but I at least was a bit isolated away from the refugee situation. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are villainizing the refugees. Of course, with 9-11, there's mm -hmm. still a lot of fear in our country mm -hmm. of something like that happening again. It's coming to this doesn't seem as large scale of a problem until I started working my way through Europe. And a guy told me in, in Denmark, I stayed in a tree that I found on Airbnb. <laughs> 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 this guy had a hammock up in a tree because it was so expensive in Denmark to mm -hmm. do anything. Mm -hmm. So I stayed in a tree and he mentioned to me that he felt Denmark was one of the least happy places 
to be someone that wants to be involved in an international aid level, even though they market themselves as the happiest country. They have one of the highest rates of antidepressant usage, he was telling me. They, uh, they, these uh, surveys about they were the happiest people in the world is basically based on economic uh, economical models. Well, they look at how high is the income, how high is the education level, this kind of stuff, and then they put it together and say, these guys are the happiest people in the world. Mm. It's not based on interviews. Mm. I see. It's just math. They have counted us to be the happiest people in the world. Nobody's asked you. Here, I'm over here, when I got to Denmark, oh, it must be the food, because you can go to 7-Eleven and get, like, a health meal, where in the U.S. you'd be eating just, like, straight-up processed chemicals if you went to 7-Eleven, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I find very ironic because they're based out of Oklahoma, which is where I came from. Mm-hmm. There's a 7-Eleven in the Denmark airport, and you guys are getting, like, way better nourishment mm-hmm. for your bodies than mm-hmm. the place where the company originated from, but yeah. they're feeding their own yeah. neighbors, so... Yeah, that's interesting in Europe, because in a place like Denmark, it's true, there's, a, there's a big trend in the cities to buy really good food, but there's only for the capable. Yeah. The food, in general, people eat shit, like really trash. Not, not like in America, but still like really poor quality, like really industrially made food that doesn't taste of anything. And then you come to a place like Lesbos and they eat the stuff they found just outside the door and it's tasty. And the mushrooms are really good. Have mm-hmm. you had the foraged mushrooms that they With gather? the cheese? No. I don't, I've had them fried. Huh? I went to Erosos for a no, night. And okay. Yeah. Somebody brought out the... Went to a, like a very traditional Greek restaurant where there was like no menu, just a bunch of men drinking coffee and smoking yeah. cigarettes. And my friend Susanna's dad ordered for us and they brought the mushrooms out and they were fresh. They just foraged them. Freaking wow. incredible. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So going towards refugee camps as a whole, and you've been around more. I've only been to the ones here, obviously. And one of the things that struck me immediately is why is there no music? Why is there anything to like lighten the mood around here? Why it's just this like very drab environment, but it's so much like a music festival setup in in a way, you know? I don't know. It just like made me think of music festivals, but without any type of joy beyond the few small volunteer tents. <laughs> this is actually the reason why I rushed down here because I was so tired of I had been working on so many projects that just fell on bullshit, like not money enough or all this stuff that they say is important that I don't and then I thought, all of this shit is so pointless. It's like, I'm all the time just smashing my head against some stupid wall in these projects. So I thought, I'll just make some fucking pointless. So I was, I packed all my records and my t- I, I'm DJing. Mm-hmm. And my turntables and a big chest. And I called the Egan Airlines and said, I have 60 kilos of luggage I'd like to bring. But they didn't allow me to bring the turntables, I don't know, for some garage. So then I just went anyway. So now I'm going to go back. And bring my car. Nobody can tell me I can bring my turntable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the plan is to start playing music for the refugees. You were telling me last night about um, ukuleles somewhere. Someone was talking about ukuleles. Oh, that was the Czech team. Oh. They were saying in Serbia that there were ukuleles in the camps and, and how you know they had to keep moving. They couldn't stay in one place because it would cause too much of a crowd issue. But moving around and people were following and dancing and. Have you seen it done anywhere else? Oh, we had in pressure one Serbia, a friend of mine, who started singing all of a sudden because everything was too crazy. And then the police started singing with him and the refugees. Wow. When I was in Hamburg, mm-hmm. there was a guy doing drumming, or mm-hmm. two guys, and the mm-hmm. group is called Drum the World. Mm-hmm. And they, they did an interview, actually, I think it'll be on the podcast, mm-hmm. where their concept is bring people into shared space and through vibrational frequencies, you can mm-hmm. lower the... The stress levels, the anger, that type of stuff. Um, And they feel like mainstream music has gone away from how music was originally supposed to be used as a tool on this planet. It's interesting also that if you can give them something that they know, Mm -hmm. or relax a little bit because everything is so new. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't understand why we don't give them more Arabic kind of food. I've been asking for this in different places, I was like, no, you cannot bring that. Like, why can't I bring olives and dates? And they know this, and they're relaxed with Boil them some beans instead of this shit junk food. All these fucking crackers with sugar inside. Not gonna last for long. And in the relation to the music, a good friend of mine, he had the idea he wanted, he had his mixer, 
and uh, little sound system and then he's I don't know if he started but he talked about he wanted to go around to the different camps in Germany with this system and then the refugees could plug in their phones so they could play and they could hear their own music and just hear what they wanted to do you think that it would cause any issues that riot police or something would have a reason to argue against it like what are your thoughts uh, it depends on the person doing it if you have a good relationship with the police before you do it I don't mm-hmm. think it's a problem you should not just jump the fence <laughs> but I think if they're cool with it then that's no problem so the food is definitely been something that's on my mind as well do you have any ideas on how that topic could be approached more that I have a good friend who is doing a kitchen and has been pressure when Selma and uh, he tried to cook different stuff but it was not allowed by the health authorities on this. So they found out they give out bananas, they have natural appeal, there's good nutrition, they give out eggs, it's full of proteins and carbohydrates, everything mm-hmm. and it's natural appeal. They give tea and uh, with sugar in it. Yeah. Yeah. So heat people and the cold is really a few other things, small packages of crackers they can bring on no one. Can you do nuts? Can you do anything about yeah, but you have to pack them. Of course, if you have them with a with a shell on, it's no problem with it. Yeah, that's an idea. Yeah, it is. He's feeding up to ten thousand people a day for two hundred euros. Wow! I thought about Maronis, roasting Maronis. You know, you see mm-hmm. them everywhere you go in Europe. What is Maronis? Maronis, a chestnut, the small black nuts that they oh. roast on the side and mm-hmm. they sell them to tourists for like. Mm-hmm. Seven for three euros or something. Mm. Yeah, that's a good idea. It's a lot of protein. They come in a shell. Mm. You just need a fire with some coals to do it. Mm-hmm. It's funny with the music, by the way. A friend of mine, she was here in Lesbos before us here, and she was in the Mo- Moira camp, and she said she came into a place where there was like no other volunteers at all. And she came to a spot where it, like, it smelled a lot, like burnt olive tree. And then she found a big campfire, and the Afghanis, they were just cheering and dancing, <laughs> having like a crazy party. I think they were basically just celebrating, they made it here without, and they were scared as fuck crossing the ocean, now they did it, let's fucking celebrate. And they deserve to be able to celebrate, everyone mm-hmm. loves to dance, mm-hmm. even if you're afraid to dance, mm-hmm. you can loosen up enough. I think actually this we're talking about here, a good friend of mine from Amnesty, he told me, we have a tendency to look at these people as, as victims. And he said, no, these guys are the ones who had the victory. They escaped the war and they survived the escape. Mm-hmm. They're not victims, they're winners. And I think that's a much more a constructive view on these people. And I think a lot of the fear, it's pity a lot of the people who sit at home having fear for these refugees, if they would just come out and meet one family, two families, mm-hmm. they, it would change their perception completely. I have never seen people being so strong as these refugees. Kids who are coming on the beach in the dark, soaked, and they have to wait for two hours for the bus and it's raining, they just start playing around. They don't sit and cry, they go and find a stick, throw it in the water, invent some new game that they didn't know before. It's absolutely amazing. I agree with you 100% that it only takes meeting one or two oh. and then your perceptions totally expanded. My first day I was fortunate. I took a ferry from Kavala, Greece into Mytilene. I was one of those volunteers that followed the Facebook post and just got on a bus from Thessaloniki and bought a ferry ticket when I got there. When I arrived in Mytilene, I thought somebody was going to pick me up because I'd been communicating with the journalist new online from America, but he wasn't there. And so I spent the next like four hours trying to figure out what I was going to do, but it was the best thing that I could have done because being in the port, you really got to see firsthand what it is that you're walking into. Mm -hmm. Say, I had people walking up to me asking me for blankets and I'm thinking, where are the agencies? You know, Mm -hmm. I thought there would be agencies here. I'm just coming as a volunteer. They're asking me if I brought any blankets Mm -hmm. and I see UNHCR blankets around, but this man's telling me he doesn't have one. Mm -hmm. And then went and waited by the sea and these four Afghani boys came over and were talking with me that spoke broken English mm-hmm. and I told them my, my plight <laughs> I don't know where I'm going I have my longboard with me I've been going through Europe for eight weeks by longboard primarily in train going to different big cities expanding my perspective on the world and mm-hmm. working on this podcast project and they helped me carry my stuff over to the <laughs> hotel yeah they they, they picked up my bag they walked to the hotel with me and the guy looks at me and I'm like these are my friends so I wait there and finally get a hold of somebody from Scala Sikimia that explains oh it's an hour and a half drive because I really I, I didn't even know where 
Scala was, and I asked one of the locals, and they're like, oh, there's a lot of Scalas. You need to figure out which Scala you're going <laughs> to. It just means by the sea. So when I hear it's going to be a couple hours before they can make it, I messaged the main boy from this group to see if he wanted to have breakfast with me because they had gone on thinking I was getting picked up soon. And he came back and his friends were doing something else, but we walked around with Delaney for two hours together mm-hmm. and he shared so much of his life with me. He's 16, made this journey alone, mm-hmm. been saving his money since he was 12 as a bricklayer to flee Afghanistan. And some of this we had to do on Google Translate, but mm-hmm. with hand motions and stuff, like we got to the meat of his story, which is that two out of three of his uncles were murdered by the Taliban. His grandfather was hit by a car in the street, which they think was also connected. He had to go on his own because they could, his whole family couldn't get out. His mom was trying to get with his two little sisters, who are eight and nine, I think, into Iran. And yeah, this kid is tenacious. He wanted to pay for part of the breakfast. <laughs> yeah, when we went to get like grapes and cashews at a mini market, mm-hmm. he was bound and determined to put some money down. It's not what I think everyone assumes that they, like you're saying, these victims that are in this desperate state. I think I'm sure there are some, but then there are others like him who have been planning this journey, and this is this really means something that he made it this far. Yeah, I think we turn them very often to victims. Yeah. When, they, when they come to the country where they ask for asylum, they have to sit in these camps for sometimes years after years, very often for a long time, and they're not allowed to do anything. They just have to sit and wait, and they, then they get turned into victims. Then they get depressions and manic or whatever. Mm-hmm. I've been working in a Danish refugee camp run by the Red Cross Asylum Center. It was a complete nightmare. Um, I saw videos with if I was working as a social worker for one family. They were really broken, but one day the kids, they showed me a video from just after they came here. It took me a while to realize it was the same people. They looked proud and strong. Five years later, they were completely fucked. And then you have clients. They're not clients to start with. No, they want to provide for themselves. They're really proud people. They, If you take Syrian people, most of them, they don't. If you say public welfare, they don't know what you're talking about. If you break your leg in Syria, then hopefully you have family, otherwise you're screwed. So they're super creative and entrepreneur. And they like to provide for themselves. It first bothered me when I heard some people calling them customers. Do you think that's the best word for it, or is there another term we could use that would be... I call them travelers. Travelers. That's the honest, it's all that it is, is they're traveling mm-hmm. in a way that is extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. They're being forced to travel this way to... Mm-hmm get where they feeling is safer where they'll have a better chance at a better life they think Ollie made it to Sweden before he left he gave me three coins because he wanted to remember he kept taking pictures of him and I together because he's like I want to remember this moment I want to remember this moment (laughs) (laughs) he messaged me on his way up to Sweden he'd had a really bad night in a train one night he asked me to pray that they would get there soon didn't hear from him for like three days and so social media has taken on a whole new level of importance because yeah. um, that's the only way him and I have to communicate is Facebook mm. and he said two to three days later yes I'm okay I've made it to Sweden and I want you to know that you're the only person my only friend that has asked me if I'm okay mm. so that means like, friendship bonds really can come from just that few moments you exchange and it's very small things sometimes yeah he gave me a coin from Turkey a coin from Iran and a queen from Sweden. He right. wanted me to remember him. So. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. A friend of mine, his brother-in-law was sitting at a bus stop in Denmark. And this guy comes over and sits next to him. And the brother-in-law can quickly see that he's not a local. So he starts chatting with him. And the man is explaining he's from uh, Syria. And he's been here for six months. And then the brother-in-law, he says, you're welcome here. And the man starts just crying crazy and he said what's wrong he said this is the first time since I left my home in Syria that anybody told me that I was welcome and I've been living in Syria myself and it was exhausting sometimes but so many people were coming mm. and I was not even escaping war I was just studying it mm-hmm. sometimes if I had to go somewhere it was, it was fucking exhausting because I had to say no to so many offers for tea then they come to Europe where they really need our help and nobody tells them they're welcome they think they're not welcome and I think in a lot of places in Europe, people are speculating why they're going to Sweden and, and Germany. Is it because of the public welfare? I'm like, 
was way better public welfare in many other places than Germany. I think it's because those two countries are the only places where the governments have explicitly said these refugees are welcome. And they are civilized people, so they go to where they think they're welcome. Sweden are the ones that came and put notes in Moria saying, mm. don't come. Mm. I think they're not Swedish you know, Nazi party people. No, they're not neo Nazi, they are right wing populists. Oh, okay. They call them the Sweden Democrats. Ah, that's what it was. Okay. Mm. So what's the difference? Can you educate me on that? They want to find a solution that is not violent, whereas the Nazis believe in violence. That's the main difference. There's got to be a different way, maybe mm. like the no-fly zone. No, they idea. don't believe in that. If oh, they, they were that nice, that would be... No, no, they believe in a lot of bombs in the countries, but they don't want to be violent to the people coming. Whereas the nicest thing is to just kick the ass of everybody who doesn't look exactly like us. We have this a similar party in Denmark that is very strong, the largest party and part of the parliament that is in government. They want. They say we should help the people in the proximate areas, like places like Lebanon and Jordan, and not have them here. As ridiculous because it's obvious that these countries can't help. Places like Lebanon, there are three million Lebanese people, and before the war in Syria, they had one and a half million refugees from Palestine. So they already have like 50% on top of their own population, which is already poor. Now they've had two million people from Syria. They have three and a half million refugees in a country with a population of three million. And every decade they've been bombed out by Israel because of wars between Israel and Hezbollah. So they're poor as fuck. As far as I know, the Red Cross is doing close to nothing down there. The same with the UNHCR. And then they just put money to these organizations and say, no, we did something. We don't do shit. Bermuda Triangle of Money Aid Relief. <laughs> do you have any ideas and solutions? Yeah, but... That takes a whole different kind of leadership. I think Europe should just open the borders and welcome these people. Treat them as new neighbors. Say, hello, my friend. Of course, there's the, but, uh, what there's happens the, in Paris, or how, you know, all the things. That yeah, well, the interesting thing is that they say it was Ayas who did this, that mm-hmm. it was Daesh. Mm-hmm. But the truth is those kids grew up in Europe. They grew up in Belgium, they grew up in Paris. The passport from a Syri- Syrian refugee that was found on the site it was quickly found out was fraud. Probably IS. They want the routes to be closed because the idea is that Muslims should have nobody to turn to but them. So when there has been an attack, they go out and claim they did it. There was a young kid in Denmark who did a shooting in February. He grew up, I think he was even born in Denmark. He had never been in contact with any people from IS. And afterwards, IS is claiming that they did it. Then they can show that they're powerful and that there'll be more hatred against them and other Muslims in Europe. And then the Muslims in the end will have to go to. So bombing them and listening to all the terror talk is just helping them. They are not as strong as we think. They're just, they're big in the mouth. And then the media continues to... Yeah, the weird thing is there's a really clever French journalist who was hostage for eyes for 10 months. He said, don't bomb them. Don't bomb them. Just make them stronger. Nobody is listening to him. People who know the most are the ones who are being the most ignored. If you don't agree with bombs, then they say you're naive or... Mm-hmm. You don't know what's <laughs> I say those guys who think that we should bomb, they are the ones who are The coalition from the West have been bombing in Iraq for more than a year. The activities from ISIS have been increasing in the area. So something is obviously not working. That same journalist has said it would be better to provide support to those that are living in the country already resisting ISIS and mm. help them gain momentum and see what they need instead of... I think the best that I've seen is just to start with a no-fly zone. Because what the Syrian people are saying is that, yeah, dies are not nice, but the government, they have destroyed whole cities just to try to get the rebels out. Almost entire Aleppo is put to ruins, the second largest city in, uh, in Syria. Nobody wants to make an off lesson. Everybody wants to fire out phone go. Better start banding together now. It's been happening for a long time. And people like you that have networks of people that are getting stuff done. How can mm-hmm. we all communicate effectively without it getting too cluster? This reminds me, this is something that I think is amazing as volunteer work, that people really meet across backgrounds and ideas that mm-hmm. you would never have been possible without the refugee situation. There's a camp, a first reception camp where they gave out tea and clothes and there's uh, a medical clinic. And the medical clinic is run by the Adventist help, so like quite strong belief in Christianity. 
And the food and the clothes is being handled by anarchists. That's the camp I worked in for the first three weeks I was here. I solidarity think, camp. I've been. I've also been working a bit on this, seeing the anarchists hanging out and joking with the Adventists and like having a good time. For me, that's just that is amazing. Mm-hmm. That yeah. gives you hope. Well, let's end it on. If you had one word or phrase to describe the community on the island of Lesbos, what would you use? Do you mean the internationals or the locals or both? All of it. Western arrogance. I think that a lot of the people who come from Northern Europe and Western Europe, they come here and they think they know it all, mm-hmm. how to do it, and they miss to see that the locals have been handling this for a long time with no help from the outside. And there's very few people who show any respect or interest in that. They think they know it all. And I've been on the beach, I have some basic... Ocean rescue training because I was a sailor and then when I've been sailing a bit and free diving and when I've come to people who have seen my professional and giving them advice, they go crazy and I know what I'm doing, I'm a professional rescue worker, blah blah blah. Yeah, but that's some basic stuff you're missing. <laughs> I'm just trying to, to help you because you need that knowledge. Whereas the most professional people I've met down here, if you give them an advice, they can see oh yeah, he's right. Mm-hmm. And they don't get offended, they they shake your hand. I was hoping there would be more people who would open their ears. I've learned a lot myself down here. I think there's... A, I was thinking about it. We were taught in school in the West we are the ones with democracy, we are best uh, educated and etc. So a lot of people, they have this idea when they come down here that they know how to do it. Not necessarily. The guy who was working out there who had been studying using music when there was conflicts and he said it was just like instant the conflict was gone. What are they people? Those people, especially Turkish and Iranian people, they are they are not good people. Their governments and their leaders are deceiving Americans and other people when they are shouting that we are helping the people, refugees and those people, but they lie. Because they are they're seeing these things in conferences, in big conferences. But the whole world doesn't know what is going on on the way, on their cities with refugees. When I'm a refugee, I saw everything by my eyes. I, I recorded all the things, all the scenes. What are they going on? What are they doing with the people? Do not. It was a very terrible trip for me that uh, I can't explain in my mind how to declare this to other people. Really, it was very terrible. If someone called me to an UN big conference, to all the world leaders, especially Turkish and Iranian leaders, also be sitting, I will, I will say all the story to them. one of the first boys or this woman was missing and her husband God bless him, he went back to Turkey to find and find her he thought maybe she went to a hospital in Turkey they were Afghan and she's missed she I think she she's not but I was like trying to promote that one so, sorry about that dead body mm. yeah and there's another missing guy like I don't know I was just I didn't know what to do I was just like do whatever I could, you know? Like, there's a missing poster. That should be on... That should be everywhere. Yeah. So, like, posting on social media. Nobody, of course. There's so many missing people. So many families separate. So many people that have no advocates. Like, Mohammed in Germany finally yeah. found his family. I really don't know what would have happened if we hadn't have exchanged WhatsApp numbers in Moria. Do you think that he'd eventually find them? I think he probably would have eventually found them somehow. But I think that it would have been 
a much more complicated process for his family to get to where he was in Germany. We were advocating for him. The group that I'd met in Berlin was working on his behalf, as well as Alexander, who also met on the island. She went to Germany, was talking to people in person about it, like making sure, because his family was separated when they reached Germany. His uncle's still in a camp on the other side of the country. They won't let him leave. I mean, this so is what's happening prison? is it's like concentration camps type of stuff. Except without the killing. Yeah. Well, they're killing themselves. I mean, Mohammed, the reason that I felt so strongly to go is because he told me he didn't want to live if he couldn't find them anymore. And he was getting really close to the point of, like, what is the, why even try anymore? How many of them are going to kill themselves? You know, how, okay, well, we don't have... Already uh, traumatized uh, people with PTSD, most likely. Yeah. Who are in these situations of being stuck. Like, yeah. Yeah. And they can't... I am sure there's already been suicides. Well, yeah, we know, you know, hangings of making a statement into Meany and stuff. But have they actually done it? I, I don't think there were two Pakistanis that did. I heard about that. I'm just wondering, okay, well, we see this, you know, right now. Imagine a year from now, two years from now. There's no gas chambers, <laughs> but that doesn't mean there won't be mass suicides. There won't be hunger strikes where people starve themselves to make a point, and nobody hears their point. You just heard from Atik the Afghan and Ashley Anderson. I met Atik inadvertently right before running into Ai Weiwei. We thought Ai Weiwei was a UNHCR employee at Moria Camp, or at least that's what he told Atik. And that's why I ran after him, asking if he could help me with some contacts I needed to track down in Germany. Instead of talking about this contacts, we ended up talking about the crystal I was wearing in my ear. Should have known that he was an artist. Anyway, I digress. Thank you to the interview of Yanis Verifakis, courtesy of Democracy Now. Check out the links in the description of this podcast to see an interactive map that illustrates the flow of refugees worldwide. You'll also see the link to the Democracy Now interview that this sound clip came from today. Now, as we wrap up the end of season one, I'd like to thank everyone that shared their thoughts and supported this idea that made Unified Thread season one possible. We will not forget what is happening right now. It's a global community. The internet has broken down all of the barriers that keep us from being able to see what someone else might see in their life. The refugee crisis is not a new phenomenon. However, the more that we can get the word out there, the more that others can be aware, as well as ourselves, about how important it is that we're kind to our neighbors. We will continue to follow the thread from season one into season two, and we'll be weaving together perspectives from across the world in this audio project for as long as time will allow. If you're interested in sharing your perspective about mice migration on this podcast, please email me at amy at unifiedthreads.com. Thank you to all of the sponsors that supported season one when I had no clue what this was even going to be about. This includes my mom, my late grandfather, and my grandma Coco, Aunt John and Uncle Kip, Uncle Ricky and Aunt Beverly, my cousins Evan, Krista, Leah, Justin, Katie, Kim, Josh, and Justin, my production sponsor Tim Strange and Loyal, which stands for Linking Oklahoma City's Young Adult Leaders, Class 9, April Campbell of Central Park Dog Daycare, Sherry Gamel, Kelly Barnett, Christy Counts, Danita Thomas, Angie Broadhead, April Mays, Ashley Arnall, Beth Short, Chen Wee Shing, Gentry McCowan, Iris May, Joseph Soler, Louise Bennett, Matt Wills, Melissa Megginson, Patrick and Amy Bender, Paul Schoenwald, Russell Davis, Sarah Hess, Terry G. Sparks, Tracy Zeke, Don Cherry, Holly and Hire, Joyce Olmstead, Mandy Heaps, Margaret Megginson, Renee McKenzie, Rita Hoke, Cheryl Colton, Honeybee, the best little poodle ever, and Susanna Della Maddalena, along with the many other friends who have supported me emotionally and energetically. You know who you are. An additional thank you to Shai Hollowell for lending some of her musical talent to this project. To hear more of Shai's music, you can look her up on SoundCloud.com under C-H-E-Y-H-A-L-L-I-W-I-L-L. I'd also like to thank Corey Coates from Podfly Productions. Corey has been an amazing force of patience with me as we've gone through this learning curve. So thank you, Corey, for sticking with us in season one. We look forward to having you on board again to weave together season two. And last but certainly not least, a special thank you to Hava Gurevich at hava.biz, H-A-V-A dot B-I-Z, for her beautiful illustration of the network of nature through the Devonian Playground, which has been the show's cover art for season one. 
Until next time, namaste, and keep your eyes wide open. each day and be done with it. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day. You shall begin it serenely and with too high a spirit to be encumbered with your old nonsense. You go, Amy. Rolf Waldo Emerson. You go, Amy. Good to go. Nothing is impossible. Even the world, the word itself says I'm possible. Drop the mic, drop the mic. Drop the mic. <laughs> I can't drop or else you're gonna get mad at me. No, you can drop it. It's okay. You did. <laughs> <laughs>